The book of Titus is actually the epistle to Titus. Paul the Apostle is writing this letter to Titus, who was one of his ministry partners, who had been sent to the island of Crete in order to establish and set it in order the churches that had been planted there. He was to raise up leadership, he was to establish sound doctrine, and he was to make sure that the church was running as a church ought to run. Well, now we're coming to the end of this letter. It's not been very long, but there's been plenty for us to learn in it. And this last section really brings together the main themes of this book. In verse 8, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He uses this phrase, the saying is trustworthy. The Greek word for trustworthy is pistos, which is often translated faithful. But trustworthy is a good translation too because it gives us the sense of what we're supposed to take from that. What is a faithful saying? It's a saying that you can put your faith in. You can trust it. And this is a phrase, a trustworthy statement that Paul uses five times in the pastoral epistles, which of course are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. You have this one here in Titus, you have one in 2nd Timothy, and then in 1st Timothy he says that phrase three different times. And there is some discussion about what exactly is this phrase that Paul doesn't use anywhere else. And a, a common answer is Paul is affirming statements in the church that were being passed around that he was giving his stamp of approval to. So yeah, you maybe have heard this one. Yeah, that's a good one. Because a lot of these statements have a, a formulaic nature to them, or they feel creedal, meaning they're, they're a statement that was being passed around by the apostles and the teachers. There's some discussion about that, but it's Paul's way of saying, maybe you've heard this one. Yeah, that's a good one. And it seems that he's referring back here. He's referring backwards to what he has just said in verses 4 through 7, where he gives that, that beautiful description of the gospel, how we were sinners, but God stepped in to save us by the Spirit, the regeneration, renewal, by the grace of Jesus Christ, that Trinitarian gospel we talked about. He's just laid that out, and he goes, that's a trustworthy saying. That's something you can take to the bank. And he tells Titus to insist on it to insist on these things, and maybe even more broadly, everything Paul has said in this letter, to insist on it. To insist on these doctrines that we are saved by grace through faith. To insist on the fact that it was God's love sending the Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and rise again so that the Holy Spirit could regenerate our spirits and send us out to do good works. Paul says, insist on these things. Many times in this book, Paul has encouraged Titus to be strong in his leadership. So insist on it. There was a trend a while ago, and it's kind of died out, unfortunately, because a lot of the churches that were doing this have died off or have apostatized and walked away, where you didn't want to insist on doctrine. What you wanted to do is have a dialogue. And we turned the word dialogue into a verb, which drives an English fan like myself nuts. We were dialoguing together. No, you were having a dialogue because that's a noun, it's not a verb. But did you remember? The, yeah, grammar. <laughs> I was the one that taught the sentence diagramming in my Greek classes. So there, that tells you a little something about me, doesn't it? 
But this fact's not funny at all. What they were saying is we need to dialogue with people about their ideas about God. And it's not the pastor's job to tell what doctrine is. Let the seekers come in. Let them come together. and We'll all have a discussion. and We'll arrive at something that we all can agree upon. And you really shouldn't tell anybody that, they don't, that they're wrong or that the Bible says this because maybe they don't believe the Bible. And it was part of that whole seeker-friendly emergent church movement, which uh, in many cases was a cloak for unbelief. And that's why you don't hear much about it anymore, because a lot of those churches are not even bothering to be churches anymore. But the opposite of that is what Paul says, you insist on these things. You know, I'm afraid I must insist. <laughs> does, it real, does Jesus really have to be the Son of God? Uh, yes, I'm going to insist on that one. He says, don't, don't let people come in and muddy the waters on these sound doctrinal matters. And the reason he gives is not just so that we can be right, Titus has made this point several times. He says, in order that, hina is the Greek word there. It always announces the purpose or the reason of something there in verse 8. So that, in order that, hina, good works. So that we might be devoted to good works. Why should he insist on sound doctrine? So that the church will be devoted to good works. And that returns us to really what is the main theme of the book of Titus. Is to raise up a church that will be zealous and passionate for good works. We read this in chapter 2. That is one of the reasons Jesus died in the first place, was to raise up a generation of people that are zealous for good works. And he tells us to be careful to devote ourselves to them. That, that word for careful is great. Frontizo in Greek, it can mean to be anxious. So if you want to be anxious and stressed out about something, be anxious and stressed out about, am I doing good works? You know, most of the time when we're anxious or stressful, it's because we're self-focused, isn't it? I'm thinking way too much about myself, which is why sometimes the solutions people give you for mental health issues are focus on yourself more. Well, that's it's terrible advice. The advice the Lord gives is, hey, go be anxious about serving somebody else, devoting yourself to good works. But wait a minute, what's the connection here, though? He says, insist upon sound doctrine in order that the people might devote themselves to good works. What's the connection? Well, when we know sound doctrine, that we have been freed from sin, and we're no longer slaves to unrighteousness, and we realize that it was all because of the love of God, that compels us to do what we could not do before. Have you ever had a bad cold, and you kind of forget what it feels like to breathe deeply? It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? And then as soon as you, you get cleared up, you walk outside and just... Ah, I just breathe that morning air because I wasn't able to do it before, but I, I can do it now, right? Well, it's, this is a similar thing here, that before we weren't working right. Our bodies weren't working right. We couldn't breathe in deeply, you might say. But now that Jesus Christ has come and we're not bound to our sins anymore, says, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the right thing. Anybody that says, I've been saved, therefore I can sin as much as I want, has completely and entirely missed the point. Not only that, but the love of Jesus compels us. The one that saved you and did this for you has asked you to do this. So what kind of ingrate do you have to be to say, well, you might have saved me. That doesn't mean I've got to do what you say. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you. You can imagine the disciples pulling out their notebooks and getting the pencil ready. Okay, what's the new one? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
Jesus said, the thing I want to define my people is love. And that's what Jesus did. He brought the love of God into the world. He was the manifestation and the incarnation of the love of God. And Jesus lived it. Jesus did not just walk around saying, I am the son of God and I'm here because I love you. Just take my word for it or you'll go to hell. Like that's not what Jesus did. He walked around loving people everywhere he went. He went to people that nobody else wanted to love. People who were demon-possessed, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, people that were poor, that nobody wanted. He said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to love them as much as I can. And sometimes we try to turn this into this weird political thing about Jesus. Jesus loved the poor and the oppressed because he hates the rich, and that's why we've got to overthrow the blah, 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 blah. When in fact, Jesus did, did Jesus loved people to the offense of both sides of that coin. First of all, Jesus would go to the tax collectors and sinners and the poorest of the poor and, and the Sadducees and Pharisees would get all uppity about, how dare you, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman touch him. Well, there's also another guy though named Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? A rich man, a tax collector, a collaborator with Rome who was oppressing and ripping off his people. And Jesus came and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm gonna stay at your house today. And said, so they were all angry. How dare, doesn't he know that he's supposed to be on our side? Jesus goes, I'm not here to do that game, man. I'm here to love everybody. Isn't he a son of Abraham too? He lived it. And that's what he desires from us. And we're living, I don't got to explain it to you, in a world and even a time compared to the rest of time that is so filled with rage and fear and sorrow and pain. And Jesus said, I'm going to save you and then send all of you out to go do as much good as you can. That's pretty great, isn't it? I'm going to send you out to spread love, not out of obligation, but out of joy and out of gratitude. Can you believe what God has done for me? You ever have a kid that would try strange concoctions at the dinner table and then try to insist that everybody try it? Yeah, I have a, I have a son like that who, who convinced us that, you know, if you, if you mix ranch dressing and ketchup together... It's the best thing you've ever tasted in your life. And so he said, can I get some ranch and some ketchup? And I said, no, you can't, because I know what you're going to do with that. He goes, why? It tastes good. You've got to try it. Now, that's disgusting. But we ought to have that similar attitude that says, hey, if I found something that's good, I want other people to know about it. That's kind of what social media amplifies, isn't it, right? I like this. Everybody, find out about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how you should treat the gospel. I've been set free. I want everybody to know. I want to share this with the whole world. And this is the message that I desired to communicate through the book of Titus when I decided to teach through it. We've been going through Daniel and Revelation, and those have been fabulous. I don't apologize for that. But I wanted to make sure that we got back to remembering doctrine is good, but doctrine is supposed to drive you to insist upon and devote yourself to good works. That the deeper you go in your walk with Christ and the more you learn, the more it should drive you to want to live out what Jesus has called you to do. And that's what Paul tells Titus. Insist on these things so that our people will devote themselves to good works. Verse 9, he's going to give the opposite. But avoid foolish controversies. Somebody say amen. Genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So 
these two instructions, we're talking about insisting on the gospel of grace. Paired with that, Titus is to avoid foolish controversies. I know there are some of y'all in here that want to be pastors or missionaries. Some of you who lead small groups. Your job is to avoid foolish controversies. Now, we just talked about insisting upon sound doctrine. Some controversies are worth having. That's important to remember because some people are so scared of people raising their voices or disagreeing with each other that they just want everybody just to don't talk about it and just get along and say yes so that this awkwardness passes. Some controversies are important to be had. However, most others are distracting, they're confusing, and they don't add anything to the church. You ever lived through a time, I know you have, or been in a church where this, some issue rose to the forefront and nobody was thinking about the gospel anymore or the work of ministry anymore and all anybody wanted to talk about is where you stood on this issue? Probably got a few examples running through your head. Foolish controversies. There's three examples he gives here. The first one is genealogies. Now, you know what a genealogy is. This is in the Old Testament where it says, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so and lived a thousand years and died. Those are the genealogies, the begats of the Bible. Now, why is he telling him to avoid foolish controversies surrounding genealogies? Well, then as now, there were people who believed that if you study the genealogies carefully, there were secret codes in there. And if you broke down the numbers of the names and what the names meant and flipped it inside out and played the record backwards, you would learn the true secrets of heaven. And it was all there. And you had to go to these special secret clubs where they would study the real doctrines. And it's all hidden in the genealogies. And Paul had no time for that nonsense. Paul was a rabbi. There's actually a place in Timothy where he says, all these people that pretend to be teachers of the law, and they don't know what they're talking about. So maybe they should read some of the things that tell them to love their neighbor instead of wasting time with the genealogies. So let's just make this category a little broader. Anybody that comes to you with the secret code of the Bible, just move on. Just move on. And I realize I might be stepping on some toes here. But frankly, the Bible warns us against these things. God could have given us anything. He gave us a book filled with words and sentences and paragraphs. And one of our interpretive principles as evangelicals and as conservative uh, Christians and everything is the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, some people want to abuse that term and say, oh, so you believe that God literally has wings that he covers us under like a chicken? I thought, it's like, all right, don't, don't try to be weird about it here. What literal interpretation means is the Bible is to be interpreted according to the normal rules of language. There's nothing secret behind it. There's no secret allegory. There's no code. There's no thing that has been locked away in church vaults for thousands of years. And it's just now been revealed unto the world. And there was a while ago, it's kind of died off now, where everybody was all obsessed over the book of Enoch. And we're going, oh, this has been hidden away. No, it's not canon. We've always known about it. It's not in the Bible. What do you want me to say? Secret codes, unlocking. It's so help me. If I ever write a book with a subtitle, unlocking, just come smack me across the face. Because the Bible is not locked. It's been unlocked. It's been unsealed for everybody to know. And not every book that has that word in it is bad, but it just rubs me the wrong way. Because we're not supposed to lock the Bible or act like it is. It's there for you to read and study. 
You can do this, read it and figure it out. It might take you some time to break down what the symbols mean or to connect with other passages of the Bible, but God has not hidden himself in his word. He's revealed himself in his word. So avoid these people that have these secret thoughts about what's out there. And usually if somebody believes that, they've got other weird ideas too, and you want to watch out for that. Okay? He also says dissensions. These kinds of foolish controversies are just personal power games. Personal conflicts. The dissension has nothing to do with Jesus, has something to do with, I don't like you and you don't like me. Everybody choose sides. That's dissension. This was going on in the church at Corinth, where they were picking their favorite pastor and dividing up into teams. Oh, I am of Paul. Well, I am of Apollos. Well, he's a much better preacher than Paul. Yeah, well, Paul does more miracles than Apollos does. Well, I'm of Peter. I mean, he's the one that Jesus selected in the first place. And then these other people go, well, I'm of Jesus. I'm more spiritual than all y'all because I only follow Jesus. And Paul comes in and goes, who is Paul? Who is Apollos or Peter? He goes, who cares who we are? What a silly thing to be fighting about. But we do this in church, unfortunately, all the time. All the time. And I'm not so much talking about denominational leaders now, but within the church. People can split up into cliques and teams and, and the, even various ministries sometimes have this weird wall that they put up where, no, no, you can't come into this. This is a, we've got things handled very well, thank you. Our ministry team leaders will tell you, I'm constantly on, on them to get more people in there. <laughs> get more people in, open the doors. I used to do this in, in our youth ministry where you'd be teenagers, high schoolers, and they'd all, you know, stand in a circle or sit in a circle and taught and talk and there's always be like one one or two little kids kind of like moseying around the outside like i'd like to come and talk in there is that okay if i do that and i would i would say some of y'all remember i'd say hey guys open the circle open i'd put them like this literally push them aside and bring somebody else in because that's what the church is to be but you come along and say well just this person just he really just has that charm and that charisma and i like what he has to say or oh did you hear what she did to her whose team are you on what kind of silliness is that I mean, if you've ever come to me with something like this, and we've only had this happen maybe once or twice, and it never got out of hand, usually what I say is, y'all are grown-ups, go fix it. Go fix it. Because I'm not going to let this turn into a big, well, we met with the pastor. All of a sudden, it's like a big deal. It just, we're supposed to love each other. It's not these weird personal things. You know, we're, we're looking at this building transition in a couple months here. Please don't get into some weird argument over, like, the shape of the, of the carpet or how, whether we're going to schedule it this way or that way or why well, I thought we should have run the wires this way. Who cares? All right? We could do this in the woods. All right? Like, really, it's not about that. It's, it's better to do it in the woods if we're just going to get into these personal conflicts. So, dissensions. And number three, quarrels about the law. I love how Paul calls them quarrels. He doesn't call them debates. Well, we're having a debate in the open marketplace of, audition, of uh, ideas. And Paul goes, no, you're quarreling. You're, you're arguing. You're the kids in the backseat of the car. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. That's my side of the car. You stay on your side of the car. Mom, do you hear what he said? Paul goes, that's what it sounds like to me. Paul's coming to the end of his ministry. He'd heard it all. Quarrels about the law. Why specifically the law? Because there were many people that were either coming from Judaism or who had been Gentiles in the synagogue that had this weird fascination with Judaism where they were saying, well, what about the law? And Paul goes, what about the law? It's been handed over to Christ. And now the law is a great teacher for us, but it's no longer our master. And people didn't quite know how to handle that. And there's still to this day people that have very weird ideas about the law of Moses. 
You know, I, my dad sent me a video the other day, which was a great video, but down in the comments, all of a sudden these people had, and that's why we have to keep the Sabbath day or we'll go to hell. It's like, what? That's what you get from the cross and Jesus saying it is finished? As long as you keep the Sabbath? Like, or people that say you shouldn't eat this and that, even though Jesus declared all foods clean. Now here's the thing. I don't even want to quarrel about that. Paul says if you're going to do that, God bless you. Have fun. Just don't make anybody else feel bad because they're not doing anything wrong either. But we quarrel. We're going to fight about it. We're going to go online and I'm going I'm to fight for sound doctrine. No, what you're going to do is you're going to get into a flame war in the comments section with somebody and call it spiritual. That's not what we're to do. We're to avoid things like that. Paul calls these things unprofitable and worthless. Well, sometimes you've got to step... No, Paul says it's worthless. It adds nothing to the church's drive to do good. To be do-gooders. It adds nothing to that. All these controversies... Nobody walks out of those going, and now I really want to go evangelize more. Maybe you come out of it saying, I really want to convince somebody of this new doctrinal thing that I just came up with, or recommend this new weird book I found at the bookstore about the secret codes of the Bible. But we never walk away from that saying, man, i got to love more people. Jesus was the master of defusing foolish controversies, especially in the last week of his life when he's in the temple and he's preaching, and all the people are coming with their weird questions. And the Sadducees came up in Matthew 22, and they said, Hey, uh, we know you believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. They said, well, we know this one woman who married one man, and then he died, and she married a, another man, and seven people. And she had seven husbands, and then she died. So in the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> Boom! That's a messianic answer to a foolish controversy. He goes, you know what your problem is? You don't know the Bible and you don't believe in God. So I'm not about to have this conversation with you. And you know what? Sometimes that needs to be the answer. Well, they'll think they got the best of me. But they're warped. They, you don't, you're not going to convince a person like that. The Holy Spirit might convince them, but it's not your responsibility. Zach will tell you. We get people calling the church all the time with weird ideas. And they don't want to convince anybody. They want to fight. Because that's what religion is for them, is fighting about weird ideas. So sometimes what we've got to say is, well, you know what your problem is? You don't know the Bible, and you don't seem to know God either. Would you like to know Jesus? Ah, they freak out on the phone. All right, well, have a nice day. Click. Then they call back. How dare you hang up on me? It's like, you called me so that you could yell at me. Don't talk to me about being rude, mister. Jesus' example is needful for us. It's needful for our times. Because is there a shortage of foolish controversy in the United States today? Man, we're going into an election year. What do you think? <laughs> foolish controversies. And these things are foolish and unprofitable. They take up an inordinate amount of energy and time for God's people. You know, there's certain things you need to have strong opinions about. There's other things that have nothing to do with Christ. So just hold it loosely. And I'll tell you, during the pandemic, there were an awful lot of foolish controversies. And there were several times that folks tried to bring these in and make this, well, when are you going to preach on the vaccine? How's never sound? There ain't no chapter or verse. You see how not everybody laughed at that? Because every, this touched every single one of us. Well, it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it has nothing to do with Jesus. I'm not going to bring it into God's church and make a controversy out of it. If you come to me and have a question or you want to talk on your own, that's fine. But we're not going to divide this church down the middle over something like that. It has nothing to do with Christ. 
And there were a few people that wanted to make this the issue. They, didn't, they didn't, had not been here long, and they didn't stay long because they really weren't interested in learning about Christ. They wanted to make this a place for their political views to be aired. Foolish controversies. What do you do with people like that? Well, he tells us such people are to be warned. He says once, maybe twice, and after that, have nothing to do with them. Oh, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, it's what the Bible says, guys. That's how a leader is to handle foolish controversies. To warn them and then cast them off. This is straight up Matthew 18 church discipline. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him alone. Y'all will know if you ever come to me or hopefully one of our leaders and you've got a problem with somebody in the church, my first question is, have you talked to them? Well, no. Then don't you dare come talk to me. You go talk to them first. It says, after that, go to them again with somebody else. Take a few people, and maybe you've also noticed the same thing, or maybe to help arbitrate the situation. Because if that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. I would add a step in there. Then you bring it to the leadership of the congregation. Says, and if they still won't repent after a public rebuke, kick them out of the church. I've never had to do a public rebuke. I really hope I don't have to. But if we do this long enough, it will probably happen. Somebody who refuses to submit to the authority of Scripture, refuses to do what the Lord has said, and after being approached and, and demonstrated from the Scriptures, there may come a time where we have to put somebody out of the church and say, we're not to have any more to do with them. Is that hard? Oh, yes, it is. It's very hard. But it's necessary to preserve the church. But, I mean, some of these things are, are more heartbreaking. But if somebody's coming in, they're just being divisive. Like, if you go to your home fellowship or your small group, and this person comes in, and you just go... Oh, it's going to be one of those nights. We're not going to spend any time talking about the actual text. The leader is going to spend all his time trying to manage them. And they're just going to sit there trying to split people up with their controversial opinions. That kind of person should not be allowed to disrupt what goes on in God's church. Sometimes these people do it in secret. They just kind of gather a gaggle of people after church. Maybe they go out to lunch and they kind of say, well, you know, here's what pastor said. But we all know what the secret code of the Bible really says. And maybe somebody is just trying to be nice so they don't push back on it. Or maybe somebody doesn't know. I don't know about the secret codes of the genealogy. What, what's that all about? Watch out for people like that. It will not be done here. Someone who cannot resist making trouble over non-issues in the church... Paul says is warped. You ever try to use a warped piece of wood before? Doesn't work. If we're trying to build God's house here, use that illustration, it's a warped piece of wood. They don't fit. The word Paul uses there is ekostrefo, and it can mean to turn inside out. That's about right, isn't it? Somebody causes foolish controversy, they are all inside out. They've got their priorities completely backwards. Their life is usually a mess, and they're trying to pass that mess on to you. In my experience, people that are obsessed with weird, foolish controversies have some serious problems in their own spiritual or personal life that rather than deal with those, they'll focus on the controversy because that feels to them like I'm handling my spiritual business. When in reality, it's a distraction from the actual issue. You don't usually see somebody engaging in church division or foolish controversy, for example, who has a healthy marriage. Usually, there's a very bitter, vindictive, combative relationship. It's not healthy. It's not respectful. It's not loving. There's no submission. There's no godly leadership. And so one or the other or both say, well, we're going to find something else to care about and throw all this energy that we should be throwing into fixing our marriage or our relationship with our kids or our devotional life or controlling our temper. And we're going to throw it at this thing that feels spiritual so that we don't feel like we have to worry about it anymore. 
Save your strength for the battles that matter. Because there will come a day where you've got to take a stand and say, no, we're not going there. Don't allow divisive people to have your ear. So that also means, by the way, don't go looking them up online because you might not be coming in here, but if you're going to where they are, it can cause the same kind of trouble. Verse 12, Paul's going to get some personal details here. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This is often the case at the end of Paul's letters where he gives us some personal notes. And I love these because it reminds me, oh yeah, this was a real person that dealt with real issues with other real people. And he has some fascinating notes here. First of all, we see that Paul is on his way to Nicopolis or is already in Nicopolis. Nicopolis is a city on the western coast of the Greek peninsula, the Hellene Peninsula. And it's not a city that we read about in the book of Acts, which is one of the ways we are confirmed in believing that this was written during Paul's fourth missionary journey, which implies, according to church history and church tradition, that Paul was released after his first imprisonment in Rome and was arrested again, during which time he was beheaded. But he mentions several people here. So Paul's in Nicopolis, Titus is in Crete, and he says, I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. We don't know anything about Artemis. This is not the same as ending in M-I-S. That is a female name. M-A-S is a masculine name. So this was a man. I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. We do know quite a bit about Tychicus. He's called in the book of Acts and in other letters, a beloved brother and a faithful minister. How would you like that to be your reputation? Beloved brother and a faithful minister. We know that he was from Asia, which was the Roman province of Asia. So Tychicus was probably a Galatian, probably from one of Paul's first missionary journeys. Church tradition tells us he became the pastor of the church in Lystra. The Bible doesn't say that. We know that he journeyed with Paul to Jerusalem to bring the collection of the money that they were bringing to the church there. And we also know that later on, he would replace Timothy, at least for a time, as the pastor of Ephesus about that in 2 Timothy. So that leads us to believe because Paul is saying, I'm going to send one of these guys to hold down the fort so you can come visit me in Nicopolis. It probably would have been Artemis that took this over because we read in a letter written around the same time that it was Tychicus who relieved Timothy. So these are Paul's traveling companions. We don't have letters to them. We don't talk about them a lot, but they're in there a lot, especially Tychicus. You see him quite a bit. And he says, I'm going to send one of these guys to relieve you so you can come visit me. Then he says, now I want you to speed on their way, Zenos and Apollos. This is the only reference we have to Zenos. And it says he was a lawyer. Now this could mean a couple things. This is either he was a Roman attorney, which they had those then, just like we do now. Or I think this is more likely he was a teacher of the law of Moses. If you read in the Gospels, it'll say that all the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers or teachers of the law, I think that is likely the case, that it's a teacher of the law of Moses. Why? Because he's traveling with Apollos. And we do read about Apollos quite a bit in the book of Acts. Apollos was a native of Alexandria, which was the city in Egypt. And uh, it's important to know, a lot of Christianity's greatest leaders came from Alexandria and from North Africa in general. For a long time, that was the hub of Christianity, was North Africa. It says he was an eloquent man in the book of Acts. 
Paul was known to not be a very eloquent man. That his letters were great. But you saw him in person, it was disappointing. Oh, okay, so he's just kind of this guy. But Apollos, man, that guy could preach. He was an eloquent man. And he was competent or mighty in the scriptures. So Apollos could preach and he knew his Bible. So if you wanted to hear one of the early church fathers preach or one of the you know, guys from the Bible, Apollos would probably be pretty high on my list. Because he was not just going to give you the sound doctrine, as they all would have, but he was going to fill it with, with scripture and an important Bible study and exposition, and he would deliver it in an eloquent way. We see in the book of Acts that he's preaching, but he didn't fully understand the gospel of Jesus. So it was up to Priscilla and Aquila to teach him further. And we know that he was one of the favorite preachers in the city of Corinth, as I already mentioned. So Apollo seemed to have his own itinerant ministry like Paul did, like Barnabas did, and that Paul and him had some interaction and, and some shared work together. Perhaps Apollos and Zenos were the ones carrying the letter to Titus in Crete. Speed them on their way. So it could be that uh, Apollo says, uh, Titus, Paul has a letter for you. And at the end, he tells them, help out Apollos and Zenos, whatever you can do. Isn't that neat to just think about that? There's all these little interactions, these very mundane, everyday kinds of things that are happening with these people that we think of as so high and lofty, but they were just like you and me. Just like you and me. And Paul urges him to see that they lack nothing. This is how missionaries were supported in this day. There was no mission board. There, there was no online giving. There was no Patreon or, you know, uh, Kickstarter to get these missionaries out. What it was is the missionary would show up, and you likely didn't even know that the missionary was coming because there's no telephone, right? There's no email. So they would show up. They'd have a letter probably of introduction, like from Paul or somebody. Say, hey, this is Apollos. You can trust him. Do whatever you can. It was then up to the church to provide lodging for this person, to provide food for this person, and ideally to give them the money they needed to go on to the next place. Paul did not take money from anybody, but he says in, in 1 Corinthians, look, I don't take any money, but that's my choice. Any other guy that comes through, Peter, Barnabas, they have a right to be paid. In fact, they ought to be paid by you. So this is how it was done, that Zenos and Apollos would go to Crete where they knew Paul had a friend named Titus. We'll do some ministry there, pass on his letter. Titus will see that we get housed and fed and paid, and then when it's time for us to go, he'll give us everything we need to go on to the next place. We see this in 3 John, where John is writing to a person named Gaius, and he tells him, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So Gaius, this person, had helped out some people who were strangers and had come back to John and testified. So they were traveling missionaries. He says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And if God was the one you were sending on the journey, how would you send him out? For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Every now and then, somebody blows through the church who says, where do we get the idea that you should be paid for preaching? From the Bible. That's where you get it. A workman is worthy of his hire. Missionaries are to be supported. If there are people that are going to commit themselves to the work of the ministry, Paul says, then it's up to the rest of us to support them and help them out. This is an excellent object lesson for us for what it looks like to be a, a do-gooder, which is our title today, to be a practical, obeying the Lord, doing good works kind of person. He says that they will be able to help 
cases of urgent need. That's what it means to be zealous for good works, to meet the urgent need, to bear good fruit whenever possible, not just when it fits in the plans and the budget, but to do good when the need arises. Now, we have a society that ought to be commended for its business savvy. We're really good at that. We're good at plans, we're good at budgets, we're good at systems, we're good at management, and look at what we've been able to do. That's kind of what our country does. However, you can't always do that in God's church where you're gonna plan everything and it's gotta fit in the budget and fit in the system because sometimes the need is right now. You ever been in that situation? Where I need $1,000 today or I need to get to a doctor right now. Or if I don't get this thing done for work, I might lose my job. Urgent needs happen that don't always fit in the plans. And Paul is telling the people here, you've got to be the ones that can meet the urgent need. Don't let Zenos and Apollo show up and you say, look, we love you guys, but I mean, we've already got some guys that we're supporting and we kind of have a budget set, so I don't know where you're going to stay, but we'd love to have you. We'll pray for you. Paul goes, meet urgent needs. Same thing for you and me. Hopefully you're, you're taking care of your finances, you're attending to your business, or you're looking after your family, but there's going to become times where you have to be inconvenienced, whether financially or otherwise, in order to meet the need. And we cannot be so selfish that we simply cannot be bothered to break out of our normal routine to help somebody. And this can apply so many different ways. It can be a missionary where you find out that somebody is supposed to be going on a missions trip or that there's a missionary in this place that just needs money. That's the only thing that's missing. What a shame that a country like ours, as rich and wealthy as we are, should ever have somebody that cannot minister because of money. And we try very hard here to charge for things when we need to in order to not be a burden, but also if somebody is simply desperate and can't do it, fine, do it for free. Because it's, it's not about that. However, we need to be able to meet those urgent needs. The best thing is not just to do things for free, but to give somebody in the church the chance to rack up a little treasure in heaven and help somebody. But it can also be something like you see somebody that is broken down on the side of the road and you know how to fix cars. I remember I was just driving right down this way a couple years ago and uh, I saw this guy lose control of his car, flip, bounce off a tree and roll into to the yard of actually uh, Pastor Wilder's church just down there. Now, I could have just kept going because I had to be somewhere. We actually had a, a team from Lynchburg in town and I was coming back with lunch. I could have said, listen, I'm trying to do this to minister to this team of God's people and they need to be fed, so I, I hope this person is okay. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I'd like if you learned nothing from the Good Samaritan story. We slam on our brakes, we pull over, and I run over to help this guy. And he was okay, praise the Lord for that. He just completely flipped his car a couple times, but he was all right. But it's like, listen, I, I, yeah, I got somewhere to be. Yeah, the, you know, the sandwiches might be getting nasty and sticky in the back of the car. Who cares? This is the urgent need. This is the need right now. You can bring that all the way down to a time of prayer for somebody. Somebody just is going to share something with you. Don't be the person that when somebody starts to tell their story or tell something that's going on, don't be the one to try to hustle that conversation. You ever been in a conversation with somebody like that? where you're prepared in that moment to pour out your heart to them and they see it coming and they shut down the conversation as fast as they can and move on, it doesn't feel very good, does it? At least for fellas, it makes us go, why do I tell anybody anything? Ladies are usually more insistent upon that, I have found. But listen, if somebody needs to talk, then be there for them. 
And if they need to be prayed for, pray for them. This doesn't mean that you then have to give them the next 12 hours of your time necessarily, but you give them enough to where you can meet that need, to be there for somebody, to meet urgent needs. Apollos and Zenos showed up and we weren't expecting them. They need a house, they need food, and they need money. Well, that's just unfair to ask us of that. What unfair? We're family. Family can do that to each other. You need to be like Jesus in that moment. Remember when Jesus came off the boat and Jairus shows up and he said, my daughter is dying. You got to come pray for her right now. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. One urgent need. But as they're walking, the woman at the issue of blood reaches up and touches his garment and she's healed. He says, whoa, 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 stop everything. Who touched me just now? And he ministers to this woman with the issue of blood. While this other little girl is dying over here, Jesus met that urgent need too. And then he went back and he trusted the Lord to be able to handle both of those things. And these people, Paul and Tychicus and Apollos, they're just like you and me. Not special. They have the same Holy Spirit. And God is no respecter of persons. So that means we can love just like they did. Verse 15, we're coming to the end. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. All who are with me. We don't know who was with Paul. We're not even entirely certain where Paul was. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 tells us that around this time of his life, Luke was with Paul. We know that, I guess, Tychicus and Artemis were certainly with him, but uh, he doesn't give us a long list. They're just exchanging greetings. Everybody here says hello. Tell everybody there that we say hello to. And as usual, Paul closes the letter with grace. Grace be with you all, Kairos, which is the greatest blessing of all, to have the grace of God on your life. And that's Titus. Not a very long letter, but it gives us a great picture of what a church ought to be. Remember we said at the beginning, everybody's got their own opinion on what the church ought to be. Well, we don't need to worry or wonder because God has told us. The first thing we learn from this is that we are to be absolutely devoted to sound doctrine. We don't deviate. We don't innovate when it comes to theology. We stand on what God has revealed to us. We might find new ways to develop it and explain it, but we're going to be committed to the the torch that was handed down to us from the previous generation. That gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone. That God's love has interposed between us and sin forever. That we're committed to that and we're not changing that no matter how the social or theological or political tides blow. We're going to stand on the word of God. But the second thing we've learned is that faith compels us to demonstrate that same love that Jesus showed to the whole world. We are to be devoted, zealous, desperate to show good works so that we can continue the work that Christ began. That Jesus came and brought his love into our lives. We go around taking that same love into everybody else's life so that the wave just continues to move out across the world until Christ comes. You cannot just say, it doesn't matter what I do, I believe the right things. Nor can you say it doesn't matter what I believe because I do the right things. It all works together. And a church is to be a factory for people that are going to go out and do good in the world. I love that old-fashioned word, do-gooder. Because it's, it's always said kind of derogatorily, isn't it? Kind of derisively. Ah, you're just some do-gooder going around. It's like, yeah, that's exactly what I am. How much good can I do today? And sometimes we say silly things like, the best thing you can do for the world is take care of yourself. Like, I get the point, what you're trying to say, but that's not true. <laughs> the best thing you can do for the world is to love the world like Christ has loved you. And to get out there and live it out practically, not just theoretically in your head, but to meet those urgent needs. And y'all, you are a congregation that is great at this. 
We have such a loving fellowship here. If you've not experienced it yet, you will. Or maybe you just need to open yourself up a little more to these people and let them love on you a little bit. But also, remember he was there to set up elders and teachers. The church is to be led and filled with people who believe and then act as they should. Get the right leaders in place so that this can continue. And that's what we strive to do here every day. Never forget, it's not just about belief, it's about behavior. If we are nothing else, we are disciples of Jesus Christ who do what he said. So be a do-gooder and you'll be a good Christian.